Welcome, welcome. Welcome everyone once again. Money. I kind of got stuck thinking about money. I really, uh, I do think about money a lot, probably because I come from a very poor family and they thought about money a lot. In fact, probably most of the time. And I think the poor uh, do think about money a lot. And so do the very rich think about money a lot, very preoccupied. The poor with how to get money and the rich with how to keep it and how to grow it. Money is a very uh, sticky subject. And Buddha didn't have much to say about money because money wasn't a big deal uh, during his life. But certainly all the things that money could buy, all the luxuries that he was born into and lived with um, a very princely life, uh, were cert was cer certainly something he was preoccupied with and actually renounced. Um, but not because, not because wealth was a bad thing or luxuries were a bad thing. In fact, in our practice, wealth is, is not a bad thing. It's actually it's sometimes a sign of, uh, in some instances that you, you've led many good lives <laughs> and that you've, you're receiving the benefits of that. But for the most part, wealth, wealth in Buddhist practice is a wonderful thing. Why? Uh, not just because it enables you to be comfortable and not have to think about money all the time and how to survive. Poverty isn't, that kind of poverty is not uh, conducive to practice because you're distracted by the need to survive. So being comfortable, much like when Dogen describes how the, the conditions under which you sit, you sit comfortably. You, you do, do not sit under extreme conditions. So you, you have to be comfortable. Otherwise, meditation is just uh, an endurance test. Uh, and it's not, it's not the spirit of meditation as we know it. But the wonderful thing about wealth is that you can give it away. That you, that you have enough to help others to share your bounty. So when we speak about right livelihood, Buddha did not speak about money uh, and he did not, he didn't, we, we're not calling this right profession or right job or right career. That is not what the right modifies. Uh, 
its right livelihood. Now, when we, and I think Taishin last week talked about right livelihood as a broad, broadening the notion of right livelihood. But when we, for example, ask people about right livelihood, we usually ask them what? What do you do for a living? What do you do for a living? That's a really interesting question. What do you do for your living? But usually we ask that in the spirit of what do you do to make money? Right? Am I, am I mm -hmm. off here? Um, so, so that's usually what most of us can't make livelihood, make a life for ourselves without money. We can't take care of all of our needs. We can't live a right life without depending upon all kinds of other resources and we need money for that. So money is, it's something I, I re preoccupied with because it's so significant in our lives. In fact, it, it sometimes in Buddhist practice, we, we speak about mercantile mind. Money, money is so much a part of our, our way of being, our way of thinking that we tend to commodify everything. <laughs> that, that even like when we go for a job, we, we sometimes prepare to sell ourselves, right? How, how do I sell myself <laughs> as if you are a commodity, you know? And so this, this mercantile mind, what am I getting out of something? Always, you know, this is a, a kind of capitalist mentality translated into what Trungpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism. It's even as we've talked repeatedly about why am I practicing? What am I getting out of it? It's mercantile mind. It's, this, is, this is a practice and I'm doing it to get something out of it. So, so this motive, this profit motive, this money motive seeps into everything that we do. And so when we ask, what do you do for a living? It's usually, what do you do to make money? And let's go with that. What do you do to make money? Well, we, in our recitation of the precepts this morning, there were certain, and I think Taishan mentioned this last week, certain occupations that are forbidden. Well, take the, take the occupation, vocation of being a Zen priest. That sounds like pretty 
a pretty right livelihood, right? It's, I'm not, I'm not trading in sex. I'm not a drug lord. I'm not slaughtering animals. I'm, I'm transmitting the Buddha's teaching. What could be more right? What could be a more right livelihood than being a Zen priest? Well, I know that some of the donations that come to me as teacher Donna and come to the Zendo, which indirectly supports me, come from stocks. And I don't know what those stocks are invested in. I think Angel brought this up last week. I have no idea, but I suspect that some of those stocks are invested in companies that do harm, whether to the environment, to animals, to other beings. So I wonder, and I know that some of the donations that come to the Zendo may come from people who have gotten an inheritance um, from someone who was in a, in a, a forbidden profession, maybe gambling. You know, I don't know. But we buy, um, we buy, we buy incense and candles from Amazon. We even have a wish list on Amazon. <laughs> uh, yeah, we heat with propane. I'm out there planting, making this beautiful garden for you all to enjoy. But I know some of those plants have been grown with pesticides and insecticides. <laughs> Whoa, the more I consider my vocation, my actual activity as a Zen priest, it doesn't sound too, too pure. <laughs> it doesn't sound as pure as I would like to think it was. And some, some of you may know that Steve Jobs, who was a student of our lineage holder, Koben Chino Roshi, he was actually, Koben married him and his Steve Jobs wife, married Steve Jobs. And he, he was, Steve Jobs was a disciple of Koben. And he wanted to become a monk. And he consulted Koben, Koben Chino Roshi, about becoming a monk. And Koben said, no, it's not for you. I, I'm not sure why Koben said that, but I have the sense that this, this desire to become a monk was not the desire for right livelihood. And Coben noted, noted that 
and told Steve Jobs that he should follow his passion because he could serve the world. I'm not sure that it turned out that way, but that he could serve the world in a much better way than becoming a monk because he had a genius that needed to be given to the world. And the monk's life was not, not suited to him. And so it's interesting that it's not so much the content of what you do, because you could become this, you could be a CEO of Apple, you could be working in a pizzeria, you could be, I worked for a long time in a health food restaurant um, for many years. Um, now, you know, being a Zen priest, but it's how you do it. Because no matter what you do, you're going to create harm. And I think we talked about this also last week. There's no way that your way of making money is exempt from harm. So that's the bottom line. So don't, don't, even, don't even think about it. You know, you can be assured that you are implicated in harm, in suffering by what you produce. So your making of money is on some level wrong livelihood on some level. And what then what we often forget is how we spend money. So economy, this livelihood, what you do for a living is both make money and spend money. It's, it's both, both parts are equally significant. A right livelihood also involves how you spend money, how, because that's what our life is. Make, producing and consuming is basically what we do. Produce and consume, produce and consume. I may be exaggerating a little bit, but that's a privilege of giving Dharma talks. Because <laughs> then people will, will come back and say, you're exaggerating. <laughs> that's fine. So I was... Uh, about, I was making dinner for a friend who had just um, completed successful surgery. And I wanted to make these um, fresh spring rolls. And I went to Wegmans and went to pick out a bunch of cilantro. Weg Wegmans is my practice center, sometimes Trader Joe's, but. Definitely by Zendo. And I noticed that they didn't have, they didn't have organic cilantro. I tend to 
try to buy organically grown things. I went over to the conventional section and they did have conventionally grown cilantro. And I, I just kind of stood there thinking, hmm, I want to make this, cilantro is key to success, right? To successful spring rolls. <laughs> You've got to have cilantro. Well, what should I do? Should I, because I know this conventional farming uses lots of pesticides, insecticides, uh, you know, salinization of the soils, uh, all kinds of unhealthy things for the earth. And then I started rewinding right in front of the conventional section of produce. I thought, well, you know, if I didn't buy this conventional, conventionally grown cilantro, then I actually shouldn't be shopping in Wegmans either. Because Wegmans, <laughs> I should be shopping at a farmer's market, <laughs> right? <laughs> Not in a supermarket. Rewind again. All right, if, if I shouldn't be shopping in Wegmans, I shouldn't be getting into my car, right? Because, right? Because the car is one of the greatest polluters and consumers, and particularly now since, you know, oil and gas are a real issue. So I shouldn't, I shouldn't even get into my car. <laughs> And then I shouldn't be living here because that requires me to get into my car. You get, you get my point, right? Well, no matter what you do, consuming or producing, you're gonna create problems. You're gonna create suffering. So what did I decide to do? I decided not to buy the conventional cilantro. And I decided not to make spring rolls. I made something else. But my not deciding, my deciding not to buy the cilantro didn't make like a huge difference in climate change. But it did make a difference to my own character. It, it did make a difference in, inside of me. And that, that was a real difference. And that was enough. That was a one person difference. Uh, that was a moment, a moment of right livelihood, a moment that was sufficient. So this is the question for so many of us, it's come up repeatedly in our tea discussions. Can I function in this landscape of harm? 
of suffering. As a bodhisattva, how do I function in this landscape of harm and suffering in a way that is true to the precepts? How can I observe the precepts, which is ultimately what life, right livelihood is about, to be living in, in accordance with the precepts? But in this landscape of harm, how do I do this? Can I do this? So I'd like to end with a little anecdote about this character named Nasruddin, who I find so delightful. He's a, a famous wise fool in many Zen stories, in, in many um, Persian stories. And this is the story of Nasruddin and the honest smuggler. Nasruddin is walking with his donkey toward the border. Doesn't matter which border, a border, crossing a border. And on the back of this donkey is a huge, huge uh, bales of straw that he's pulling along. And he comes to the border and the inspector is at the border, the guard, the border guard. And he said, um, what is your business? And Nasruddin says, I'm an honest smuggler. And the border guard says, well, if you're a smuggler, I'm going to inspect your donkey and I'm going to inspect, inspect your straw and I'm going to inspect you. And if I find anything that you're smuggling, I'm going to fine you. I'm going to make you pay. And Nasruddin said, you know, you won't find anything. Uh, I'm an honest smuggler. The border guard examined straw very carefully and his Nasruddin's clothing, couldn't find anything. Okay, all right, Nasruddin, take your, your donkey and your straw and cross the border. Next week, Nasruddin appears again at the border big pile of straw. The guard says, well, you know, uh, are, you, are you still smuggling? And Nasruddin says, yeah, I'm, I'm an honest smuggler. Um, border guard again, just intensively, you know, looks everywhere for something to find anything. Okay, Nasruddin, go. Well, this goes on week after week. Nasruddin appears at the border with his donkey and the straw, announcing the fact that he is a, an honest smuggler. And every, this goes on for years. And each year, Nasruddin seems to 
his clothing becomes more elaborate, more expensive, <laughs> greater, you know, beautiful silks and his jewelry is you know, more, he has more jewelry and it's more precious. And, and the border guard doesn't, you know, he has to, he doesn't, it certainly looks like Nasruddin is growing richer and richer and richer. And eventually the border guard retires and doesn't see Nasruddin again, but can never, never forget what, what was going on that he couldn't figure out why Nasruddin was becoming more and more uh, looking like a very wealthy individual, but no obvious reason. Well, one day he happens to spot Nasruddin in the marketplace. And he says, hey, you, I know you. <laughs> Nasruddin's all decked out. And he said, listen, he says, I'm retired. I have nothing to do with you anymore, but this has been bothering me all my life. You've got to tell me what you're smuggling. And Nasruddin says, I, I was an honest smuggler. And I was smuggling. What? Donkeys. Honest? So my question to you is, can we live a life of being an honest smuggler? Mm -hmm.